How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Blind. I am your host, Chris Adams. Thanks for tuning in, man. Uh, really appreciate it, guys. Uh, the growth has been amazing. We're winding down on another month. It looks like we're going to double all of May's. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited for that. Um, you can follow us on all those social media things under BTBN. Um, Facebook, Instagram. I've had a lot of people add, and uh, you can always join the uh, the private group, the BTBN Podcast group. If you type that BTBN Podcast, you can join the closed group, and uh, we post episodes and all that type of stuff in there too. So that way you can be notified when that stuff is going on. Yeah, um, there's if you jump on the Facebook page, we have that really cool green and black and BTBN colored duck call that we're going to give away um, the instructions are on the post it is pinned to the top um, all you have to pretty much do is like share the post tag a couple buddies into it and subscribe to the podcast and uh, we'll get you an entry put in there so we need some more participation in that thing I think I've been forgetting to mention it on the podcast but uh yeah make sure you enter in that thing so you can uh have a chance to win a duck call from myself. If you want to put your name down on the list for a duck call, the list is getting bigger with all these podcasts. So uh, I'm slow. I'll get to you guys, I promise. But if uh, if you want to hit me up for that, you can always do that too. It's been reviewed as halfway decent or pretty decent or not that bad from what I've heard. So it is, uh, yeah. I really appreciate you guys tuning in. Anyway, I'm just kind of in rambling mode. We got back from the zoo with all the kids, and I don't think I heard silence for the last four hours. So it's kind of weird out here talking to myself. Anyway, today I've got Randy Sisko, and uh, he's of Indiana, another awesome call maker. He was uh, actually, I think, won one of the Easton divisions this year for duck calls. Um, I can't remember, I'd have to look it up off the top of my head. But yeah, he's from Indiana, and um, his his call company is Cold Front Calls. And I remember seeing them a couple years ago, four or five years ago all the time, and know that they're just killers. So uh, yeah, hopefully you guys will look forward to that. He seems like a really interesting guy and makes a really awesome call. So without any further ado, the great Randy Sisko. All right. How are you doing today, sir? Good. How's everything out there? Dude, it is. The, it's really weird and overcast today. I think we finally had this this weird dust storm that blew over from Africa is hitting Missouri today. So everything's <laughs> way overcast. Yeah, we got some overcast here and we got some. We had a storm last night and they're calling for storms here again today, but. Who knows? Right? It's. Have you heard about that? That weird windstorm that everybody was blowing up last week? No, I have not. So I guess every... It happens a couple times a year, but these big, huge dust storms from uh, the Sahara Desert blow across the Atlantic Ocean and jump on a jet stream and cross. Well, because the media has been so bananas this year, they uh, they blew this story up to where they were talking about this killer dust storm coming from Africa, which, if you know, when you do the research, it actually happens all the time. It's not that big of a deal. 
but uh, it hit today and everything just kind of has a weird haze over it here in Missouri. And I have never heard of that, but you know, I'm, I'm so far out of the loop when it comes to news. <laughs> That's the best I hardly way to ever live, watch man. the news anymore. That is the best way to live, especially with the current climate of things. Oh my goodness. So where are you from? Um, you're, you're up north. Are you an Indiana guy? Yes. Okay, I was um, thinking Ohio for some reason, but it's close. Now, for all you uh, guys out there that know anything about sports, we're about an hour south and east of Notre Dame. Okay, okay, an hour south and east of Notre Dame. I'm trying to think. Is that that's closer to the Ohio border? Ah. Uh, I can get to the Ohio border and the Michigan border in about an hour. Got you. Okay. I'm yeah. down at the uh, far southwest corner of Missouri. Okay. So you're like closer to like Fort Wayne? Yes. Okay. I, 45 minutes to Fort Wayne, hour to South Bend. Got you. Okay. Right on. Kind of right there. What is the uh, the waterfowling like out there, man? <laughs> it's kind of like I've, I've been trying to catch up with the episodes that you've got going on. And I've heard you talk about this with some of the other guys, but it's much like what you talk about. You have in Missouri. It's, we are in an abyss. And if we don't get cold weather up North, we don't get a push of birds. Dang. We could, we could be hunting the same birds in September as we do in late December. That that stinks because looking at the map, like you guys have all sorts of little bitty lakes around you, and they might be bigger than than that. But like Rome City, all the way up to like Chain of Lakes State Park and stuff like that, it looks like you guys have awesome waterfowl habitat. But that's just looking at a map. Well, we actually we have a lot of water here in North Central Indiana, um, rivers, lakes, ponds. Um, but like I said, if we don't get uh, cold weather up north, we don't get fresh birds until really late in the in the season, if we do at all. Do they just hang out on freaking Lake Michigan? Uh, they If you can get on Lake Michigan on them on the east side of Lake Michigan in the winter, which happens about three or four times a year, at least where I hunt, because the prevailing winds come from the northwest and it's always rough on this side of the lake got you so so what what are you hunting out there are you hunting honkers or pretty much anything that is there when it comes through just kind of picking and choosing your times well it it's mainly mallards i would say 80 percent of the birds that we shoot are mallards and or geese um last year i was lucky enough to harvest a uh beautiful pair of widgeon um which are at the taxidermist um we get a few we get teal like everybody else but not big numbers um i shot oh probably a handful of ruddy ducks last year which are an oddity we do get some pintails not very many and some black ducks well, the, the black ducks are definitely, that's crazy, because that's more of an East Coast thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we're on the far western edge of the black duck, because like I said, we get, I see, 
handful of them here in Indiana a year. Yeah, man, that's it's a really weird because, like you said, you're you're like I am, man. You're in no man's land, and the only thing that saves you guys is being closer to the Great Lakes. Would you say that that helps you? Absolutely, it does. When I first started doing the call making stuff, I was in Michigan, and um, a buddy of mine lived over near Bridgman and Baroda and Stevensville, Michigan, and we would get out on the lake a few times a year and whenever we could we would always knock the crap out of the ducks hmm yeah i'm trying to i'm sorry for all the silence i'm looking i'm trying to look at the map as you're talking about it because that area is one of the few areas of the country i have a lot of experience down south up north is one that i haven't done too much of but yeah, man, that's that's crazy. It, do you guys have a lot of honkers down there, or like any migrators, or is it just locals? And if you get lucky, you get a push of migrators. Yeah, it's like I said, we we can hunt. If like we don't get a push of birds, we could hunt the same geese from September one through February fifteenth. Ugh, that's that's yeah. how our situation is down here, man, and it gets rough. You, um. Who was I talking to about it? I was just talking the other day to... I gotta pull up the library to see the last episodes. I do enough of these things that I get... I forget everything. Uh, It was Mr. Taylor. And um, he was talking about how you have to manage your birds and treat the birds. You know, so that way you can hunt them all year round. And that is so true. Especially in a situation where you're at. Where you're hunting the same birds all year round. Which is like me. And it's like... We can't bang into this whole group of 200, 250, or else we're done for the year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we really try to... Now, again, the guys I hunt with, we're all weekend warriors and go out on the weekends and hunt hard. But if, uh, if we bang up a spot one day, we won't hit it for three, four weeks. Yeah, that's what you have to do almost. You know, I the guys that are up north that are hunting all these migrators just I don't think they get it, you know, because it's like you you bang up a field if <laughs> they're not going to be back into it for 2 or 3 weeks. You're hoping to get back into it before the end of season. Yeah, I mean, like we were talking about, if we don't get fresh birds, you might as well just cash that place out of the equation. Damn, man. So, you said you're from Michigan originally. Tell me about the, the, the whole starting of hunting for you. Well, I should say when I started making calls, I lived in Michigan. Where did you I, live when I, you first started hunting? Um, right here, about in the, in the next town south of where I'm living at right now. Got you. Actually, oh, go ahead. actually grew, I grew up on Lake Tippecanoe, which is just north of Warsaw, Indiana. And... Uh, I was a deer hunter prior to my dad and then eventual football coach in high school took me waterfowl hunting twice. And then I was hooked for for life. Do you still deer hunt? No. (laughs) Dude, I'm the same way. After that weekend, I literally took all of my deer hunting stuff, my bow, tree stand, extra arrows i took them up to the high school because i knew that the uh 
uh, auto mechanics teacher was a big deer hunter. And I said, find somebody for this. And I gave it to him. <laughs> <laughs> That's, man, when I first started, I was rabbit hunting. And I was waiting for it to get cold. I was like, well, what the heck can I do until, you know, January, December, when that first frost has really happened? And uh, I was like, well, you got turkey season from the fall, so I'm going to go out and shoot a turkey. And then I was like, all right, now what else? And then it was like, oh, okay, now you got deer rifle season, because I don't do archery. I don't have the patience for it. But, um, yeah. And then I was like, all right, shot my deer on opening weekend. Now what the heck do I do? I can go out and waste time and try to do it another week or so. And uh, my buddy was like, well, why don't we try our hand at duck hunting? And uh, my stepdad had always tried to take me when I was younger. And they never came back with anything. And it was always cold, and he always got up at 2.30. And I was like, nah, that's just not for me, man. I don't know anything about this duck hunting. But uh, getting up early and going to freezing my butt off doesn't sound like fun. Especially when I can be running beagles, you know, and chasing rabbits to where I know I can... You know, it's going to be at least entertaining. Right. We tried our hand out at it, and I shot a box of shells and one Mallard Drake and one hen on my first hunt, and I was hooked. I instantly, I was like, nope, sold my deer rifle later that year, and I was like, I I don't have any use for it because I'm not going to be I'm not going to be deer hunting in the middle of duck season, you know? No, not at all. And, uh... My buddies, that still to this day, they'll take their week break to go out there and, and shoot deer during rifle season. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to be doing some solo hunting or find somebody else to hunt with for a week or two. Yep. And I tell you, taking new people out duck hunting, if you ever get the opportunity, and, and just watch their expressions and their involvement in it is priceless. Well, my uh, my best friend, I've been, we've known each other since third grade, and his older brother is really into duck hunting. My my buddy's not into duck hunting as much, but uh, I took his older brother out the first time, and it was early teal season, and we shot a four-man limit in five minutes, and just ridiculous, ridiculous hunt. We're picking up decoys, and birds are landing at our freaking feet. And I'm like, are you kidding? You, you know, you try to shoo them up, and they don't even move. And I was like, this is unbelievable. Just right place, right time. And yeah. I, I looked at him, and I said, this was your first hunt. What would you think? And he's like, it was awesome. This is the best thing I've ever done in my life. And I said, you're going to have about 100 really bad hunts before you ever have another one of these just real bangers of a hunt, you know? Exactly. This, this is not how it always is, but since then he's been constantly chasing that, that perfect yeah. hunt again. Yep, I think we all do. Absolutely, that's what gets you hooked. That was what was so hard about it my first year. Like, I was excited because we shot two, and mm -hmm. I, I couldn't believe it. And then he, on his first hunt, I think I'd been hunting like three years at that point, and I was like... Dude, the, this is this is you know a rare, rare, rare thing around these parts for sure. Yeah. Yep. I took a guy um, hunting for the first time this year, and he hunted with me all season. And when we harvested those uh, widgeon, um, they they came over my left shoulder, went out in the lake, and I give them a comeback and they came back around and when they swung right in front of us 
they were a little bit little bit out of reach comfortably to shoot at and they lit right outside my decoys and as they were swinging out in front of me I looked over to my buddy and I go we gotta shoot these and he kind of gave me that look that puzzled look like okay it's a duck you know whatever so we stand up and we popped off our first two shots missed our second two shots connected. I folded the hen. He wounded the drake. And I I said, unload the guns. Get the blind down. Get the boat out. We got to go get these now. <laughs> and again, he's looking at me like, oh, okay, whatever. And so when he reached down and grabbed that hen, and I looked back at him, and his eyes were as big as saucers. And he goes, holy cow, she's beautiful. And I said, you haven't seen anything yet. And we rolled up on this drake. And uh, it was wounded, so it was going under the water a little bit. But he popped up next to the boat, and he reached and grabbed it. And I think I made the boys the boys' year when he grabbed that drake. It was it was something special to, to witness that, you know, we don't get a widgeon in Indiana that often, but when we get a, a very nicely plumed drake and a beautiful hen, it was something else. Well, that's like us, man. We do not get widgeon. It is very, very rare in, uh, in this area that we get them. And the couple of times that I've seen, you know, had them, it's been hens or they've been very juvenile. And yeah. that's, that's a freaking trophy bird, man. There's places all over you know, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, where guys are just shooting piles of them. And, uh... You know, that's nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. It's kind of like pintails, you know? I have buddies all over that, that hear these podcasts, and they're like, dude, you gotta come hunt with me. We, we have, we're covered in pintails every year. It's like, you just pick Ugh. which one you want to hunt. And I was like, I see them once a year, realistically. We just... It's, it's mallards if you're shooting ducks around here. It's mallards, gadwall, or teal. And that's the only thing that you're going to, you know, really shoot around these parts. But they are trophies, and it's it's special because it's just different. You know, you want to check another one off the box. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and the uh, pintail is on the top of my list. Uh, I have a big bull sprig tattooed on the back of my tricep. It's part of my oh. waterfowl sleeve, man. Yep. I, I Have you heard the story of my pintail? Mm-mm. Okay, I, sorry for anybody else who's ever heard this, but it is the most ridiculous <laughs> nonsense. Um, so, pintail is my favorite duck. Like I said, I have one tattooed. I love pintails. And um, we, we, we get one or two shots a year. So, we're hunting out at my buddy's place on his little farm pond. We weren't expecting really anything. It's where we go when the weather is not great, and it's like five miles away from the house. So it's not a big commitment. Perfect. If we sh- yeah, yeah, if we shoot something cool, if we don't, we're gonna be at breakfast by nine o'clock. So uh, <laughs> we go out there and we have a a pair of mallards start working, and there's a pintail that's in uh, behind them, and he's working. It's his place. He's you know calling the shot. It's his hunt. So he's working birds, working birds, and me and my other buddy are watching this pintail. He's still working these mallards, and this pintail swings around in shooting range like three or four times. I mean, it it 
I should have just raised up and just shot the damn thing. But uh, he's working these mallards, and these mallards flare off. Well, the pintail, of course, starts to flare off too. And we're like, dude, what the heck? And he's like, what? They never got in good shooting range. They didn't finish. And I was like, but there was a freaking bull sprig right behind him. And he was like, why didn't you just raise up and shoot it? And I'm like, I'm at your place. I'm not going to just raise up and shoot in the middle of the hunt. And he's like, oh, I would have in a heartbeat. <laughs> Damn it, man. Right. So that's the first one. The second year, we're working pentails around, and we're at Four Rivers in Missouri, which is a big duck park. Anybody who's from Missouri knows Four Rivers. But uh, I shoot one, and he sails like 300 yards into the weeds, and that was the next year. We sent a dog out. I mean, it is thigh-high water as far as you can see, and it's brush and weeds. Never found the sucker. Um so we go the next year and we're hunting up at uh stockton lake and we see it just a single coming in and i look at my buddy i was like i'm not waiting for you to call the shot you're gonna find me calling the shot when i stand up and shoot this thing <laughs> so that's what happens i smack this thing he folds up dead to rights well we have another big group of mallards just coming around the bend or end of view i don't the way that it's set up is on a point and uh we see these birds working he's like hold up i'm gonna work these birds real quick and i was like all right cool my bird's 30 yards in the water just laying there and he's starting to drift the wind is pushing him out into the lake and i was like ah we have time to work these birds so he starts working them and uh those birds do the same stupid circle 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 then swing off and uh I was like, all right, I'm going to get ready to go get my pintail. Meanwhile, I haven't even been paying attention to the hunt since this point. I'm texting people at home that know me. And I'm like, dude, I've got him. I've got him. Send him a picture of the bird on the water. And, you know, just all this stuff that you get excited about. Already thinking about how I want to put him on the wall. And uh, I get out there and my buddy's like, hey, look at this thing. And I was like, what? And he's like, look at that eagle. I was like, all right. And he goes, that eagle is going to freaking snag that pintail. And I was like, he was already moving towards him. I was like, he sure as heck is. He grabs this bird up off the water as I'm standing up, flies over 300 yards on the other side of the bank, and just starts destroying him in front of me, just eating him. And my buddy goes, dude, I feel bad for you. I, I honestly, because we give each other such a hard time joking around. He's like, I'm not even going to make fun of you. He's like, I honestly feel bad. And I was like, what can I do? What, what can I say? I just got owned by America. Yeah, right. <laughs> At that point, I might have started crying. Oh, man. I just started laughing. If it would have been any other bird, I might have taken my fine and shot in that direction. But being a bald eagle, I was like, I'm not going to even shoot and try to scare him because my luck, he'll have a heart attack. And I'll get a right. five-year prison sentence for it. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah, that's my pintail story. Now, if we see him working, my buddy jokes, and he's like, hey, man, we got pintails working. I'm like, good. Tell them to get the heck out of here, man, because they're going <laughs> to screw up our mallard hunt. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my pintail woes, man. Yeah, I haven't even raised up on one. Uh, I think the closest... The closest I've come to a pintail while hunting was when we went to the Mississippi River one year. And we banged up the widgeon and the teal that day. 
and then we had a drake and a hen pintail land about 75 to 100 yards out away from us and they they knew the gig was up or something because they wouldn't come closer or anything but that's as close as i've ever been they're a finicky finicky bird i've seen a lot of them in the early season but when it's actual duck season they're in this area they just don't and when they fly like you have mallards you get your tornadoes of mallards you're working them especially in like fields and big flocks of mallards you'll be working them working them working them around and then you'll see a random group of you know six seven pintails and they just come flying in and they screw up the whole thing thing pintails are either coming in or they're circling they'll do this thing where they're like at 50 yards and then you're like all right one more pass and then they'll be at 70 yards and then they'll be at 40 yards and you're just like they're they're so they screw up everything now when i see them i just am like go away (laughs) so the first year that we actually see ducks it was my first season hunting and we see these uh we're set up on this little bitty well it's this big huge mud flat mud flat but there's a a little bitty like creek running through it the the lake is so low that it's just a giant mud flat and there's like different pockets of uh i don't know like 100 yards by 100 yards of like shin high water and we've been driving home for weeks seeing all these dirt birds work in this area and i'm like you know what let's just do it we're gonna have to hike in it's gonna be a nightmare it's gonna be muddy it's gonna be soft but there are so many birds right here let's try it and I didn't, I didn't know anything about teal at this point. You know, it was my first season. I'd been doing it for six, seven weeks. So we set up, and we're just having all these birds land. And I didn't even know what the heck they were at this point. And we're pulling it up on Google. I was like, dude, these things are green-winged teal. I was like, I don't even know if they're legally allowed because there's a teal season. And my buddy's yeah. like, you know, all of us are green. None of us know anything about waterfowl hunting. And I was like, there's a teal season for this thing. So I called the game warden, and we have him on speakerphone. And I ask him, and he's like, oh, yeah, teal are fine to shoot. You know, we're like, green wing teal. These are green wing teal. Can we shoot these? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you can shoot these things. So we light up as soon as he says it because there's a big wad of them getting ready to land. And he's still on the phone, and we're banging on him. And we get done, and we're like, all right, thank you, sir. And he just starts rolling laughing. He's like, you guys are literally out hunting right now. And we're like, yeah, oh, yeah, we just wanted to make sure we're legal before we pulled the trigger. Absolutely. Yeah, so that was our first teal experience. And we knocked out a twenty or a four-man limit of teal, 24, whatever it is, in like five minutes after that because they were so thick right there. That's insane. It was it was funny, man. It was the that was like my hooked hunt. The first one was yeah. cool, and it was like we kept going all year, and we were scratching out a single mallard, gadwall, whatever, you know, here and there. But that was like the first one. I was like, dude, this is awesome. Yeah, I can count on one hand how many times I've limited out on ducks in Indiana. It's rough, man. We either shoot one or we shoot limits. Like there's no yep. there's no shooting five or six. Like it's it's rare. It's so bad here that we focus primarily on honkers. 
yeah, we we have our fair share of those things around here. That's for sure. So, tell me about how you got into uh, into call making. How long you've been doing it? You know, it seems like I remember your calls back in fifteen, sixteen maybe 17 just really really taken off and because i remember the cold the cold front name and your shape and everything going on and people talking about them when did you start doing it man i made my first goose call late in 2008 holy cow you've been doing it a long time man yeah um let's see I think I sold my first call in 2009. You say you sold it or stole it? Sold. <laughs> <laughs> no, never stole a call. <laughs> so what What was the thought process? Were you out hunting and you're like, man, I'm going to try my hand out at this thing, or had you been doing like woodwork or anything before that? Well, the kind of the backstory behind how I got started in this is my dad was an industrial arts teacher in high school and he designed and built the house that i grew up in so i've been around some sort of woodworking uh with through my dad because his kids would make in the shop class they would make roll top desks dry sinks uh dining room sets the whole nine yards so um, when I started doing the uh, duck calls and the goose calls, goose calls were first. Duck calls came in after the fact. But um, I had a buddy of mine who I was hunting with at the time in Michigan, and I said, I'm going to buy a lathe and buy some acrylic and buy guts and, and do whatever. I'm going to make my own goose call. And he kind of looked at me kind of strange, like, yeah, right. Because I at that time I couldn't even blow a goose call, <laughs> couldn't even run one. So he comes over and we start pouring blanks and making shavings and all that stuff, and finally got one that would actually kind of work, but it looked awful. I mean, it didn't even line up when you put it together. the 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 barrel would be oblong in comparison to the uh, insert <laughs> if you didn't put it together right so it looked awful but we, we we hammered that thing out and got a shape that we liked and got better at actually boring the actual blank but man that's a long time ago yeah I mean I'm sure there's sometimes it seems really quick and sometimes it seems like a long time because I started messing with duck calls back in 15 is when I really got in, uh, started making them. And uh, everybody always asked me, you know, like 16 and 17, they're like, when are you going to come out with a goose call? When are you going to come out with a goose call? And I was like, dude, I love hunting geese, but I have absolutely no desire to make a goose call because <laughs> if I take my guts apart, it's taken me a hell of a long time. To get them back to where I want and to retune my own goose call. And that's not shaving reeds. That's not coming up with my own guts. That's just putting my own one back. You know, we're a duck call. I know how to work through the process to get it there. So goose call as your first thing starting out sounds like an absolute nightmare. I have some 
some goose calls that I've made, but like you said, man, it's uh, they're very rough compared to my duck calls. Yes. Um, when I made the transition to doing from or building goose calls to start doing duck calls, I thought the duck call was worse. Get, actually getting a tone board that sounded like a duck. That process took me for what seemed like an eternity. I feel like that's a, a pretty common feeling because it just it's constant refinement. Like because you can make a duck call quack relatively easy if you get a shape like you know, you can do a straight forty five degree angle and make a quack, it won't sound good. But you <laughs> right. can, you can get it there. But uh you know, there's guys that they're constantly even guys that have been making calls thirty years are coming out with new jigs. You know, every now and then, because you're always refining, trying to find a new way to reinvent the mousetrap. So exactly, I can imagine it. The like the goose call to me that it made it seem more challenging was there's just more parts to it. There's so much more you can mess up with it. Yeah, um, especially when you get into the internal pores of a like, like the barrel, for instance, for instance. You know, the internal bores of your barrel is going to affect on a lot on how that call operates. So, yeah, getting that fine-tuned is was a trick in itself. Was it something that, especially, you said you were really green and goose calling. Like, how the yes. heck? It, like, there's only one person that I know of that nailed it straight out of the box, you know? <laughs> And I mentioned yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that episode too. Yeah, because, you know, just figuring out how the heck a call operates. But figuring out those back pressures, the bores, where to put your differential on the step. Like, it just, there's, it seems like there's way more going into a goose call than a duck call. So it just, I don't know. I need to mess with them and play with them more for sure, man. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun, I tell you. You're going to make a lot of firewood, but oh, yeah. it's worth it's, it. It's like going back to being a brand new call maker again. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, we'll do that. <laughs> so, um, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm good. You go. Oh, so I was going to say, so you get you get the idea in the head of doing it. Did you guys already have lathes and stuff because your dad had been doing woodworking so long? Or you lived in Michigan when you started, so you were starting from scratch. Yeah, scratch, scratch, and I did it the expensive way. Well, I, di- I didn't, I didn't do the typical dowel, and you know the the cheap wood and all that stuff. I went straight acrylic right away and burn up a lot of money. Oh, does that like to me when I see new guys that are starting, that are working on? They're like, hey, this is my first tone board that I've ever worked on, and they've got. Chechen Burl or you know Honduran Rosewood as their first call and I'm like that's right. awesome that you're getting into it but oh my gosh dude start with maple start with hedge start with a dowel you know because yes. holy cow you if you're going this big this soon you're gonna you're gonna work yourself right out of the game by spending too much money up front too soon yes yep and I darn near did that it, it's it's so easy to do when the first thought that I had was starting duck calls was, number one, I wanted to stay involved with hunting all year round. 
I love blowing duck calls. I love messing with duck calls. I love collecting duck calls. But number two, I was too poor because I had two new kids. They were like a six months old and a year and six months old when I oh first my. started. And I was like, I can't afford to be spending $150, $200 you know, every few weeks on this custom call that I want out of this material, keeping up with the trends. And I was like, yeah. I'm just going to do it myself because I can save myself a lot of money doing this, you know, ha ha. Instead <laughs> of turning yeah. into this black hole of expense. Yes. Yes, I, I had that same same mindset when I when I started doing the duck calls. I think I, people really underestimate how much goes into it. It's almost like you can get away with doing it very, very cheaply, but you're just going to end up spending the... That was mine. Like, people ask me a lot. They're like, how much does it cost to get into this? And you hit them with the bigger number first. Because it's like, you, oh, can, yeah. you can do this thing for around six or 700 bucks. If you really want to lathe, bandsaw, and some of your tooling, you can do it for, you know, five, 600 bucks. But you're going to be going back and doing $100 here and there every week until you get every piece of equipment you really learn that you need to have. Yeah, and there's a I just, in fact, I just ordered a new tool yesterday. I can't remember the, uh, Ryan. No, not Ryan. Anyways, he's making that new uh, O-ring groove tool. Yeah, Jason, uh, not Jason. What's his, I know his last name's Hatchel. He makes yes. some calls, but he's a big, big Brad samples collector. That thing looks so freaking cool, man. Oh, I can't wait to try it. Yeah, I've That's... seen videos of Brad doing it. That's one guy that it's really smart, and I can't believe nobody has done it yet besides him because that was that is the biggest headache when you first oh. learn to do those grooves, man. I've, I've tied thread underneath the O-rings when I was learning to do it and trying to get yep. those exact dimensions. And it, sometimes I'll, I'll still screw it up. I've done that too. <laughs> I mean, I have a have a my O ring groove tool is a ground down uh, screwdriver. Phillips head, man. I still got one, right? Or a flathead, not a Phillips head. Yeah, flathead. That's what I've been using for eons. And I saw this, I said, "Oh, I don't care what it costs. I gotta have it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have one right here. I keep my. When we do these podcasts and I'm relegated to being outside in the shop, that's where I do it at. And I have it sitting right next to the phone right now as my flathead O-ring cutter. <laughs> yep. And every now and then, you know, the girlfriend will be like, hey, I need a screwdriver. And she'll come out here and take this one. And then I start looking around. I'm like, where the hell uh-huh. is my screwdriver at? Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. I got to have that tool. That tooling, man. It's. It's crazy. Did you start with uh, a preset of molded guts, or what was that venture like? Uh, yeah, I actually, oh my goodness, when I started doing the goose calls, I got every gut known to man that I could get my hands on. I had everything from the KODs to the cluckers to... Uh, uh, a guy uh, uh, wingtip down I can't remember his name but he had like four or five different sets of guts I ordered all of his 
I would order uh, guts from Gary Grob. Um, yeah, I had them all. And I just started, you know, finding one that fit me. And it was tough because, one, I'm green and starting to learn how to run a goose call. Um, I was lucky enough to have my buddy Dave who could who could run a call and then I, a guy that would mess around in some competitions up in my area in Michigan and he would help me out giving me pointers and well, I like this gut, I don't like this, I like that, I don't, you know, run through the whole gamut. But um, yeah, I finally broke down and and kind of hacked my way through a through a uh, piece of uh, Delrin and made my own gut. <laughs> and see, that's a process that I think is so overlooked in itself and so much, because you see so many guys out making duck calls, but to make your own guts on a goose call is the equivalent of throwing an echo insert away and starting to make your own tone board. And that was another reason guys would be like, hey man, make me a goose call. I'm like, I don't have my own guts, man. I'm not gonna make you make you a yeah. goose call and, until I have it to where I'm making my own guts. And I think that was just because the stigma of the uh, the echo insert guys. And where it's, it's, there's so much more to a goose call than just the guts that are in play with it. But it was just that look. And they're like, hey, what what guts are you using your goose call? Well, I'm using some MGBs or something like that, which are great. There's so many great guts on the market that people are, are putting in their calls. But I have a ton of respect for guys that are making their own. Absolutely, it's uh, it's it's just another little. You know, we're all we're all out here to all the call makers, anyways. I would think, but we're all here to put our own spin on uh, the, the tradition of waterfowl hunting and uh, getting getting your own gut or your own tone board there's a big sense of satisfaction doing that it's it's carving out your own your own look your representative you know um, because that's you look at all these really classic calls of guys that have come and gone and, you know, that have left their legacy. And that's one of the things that I really love about call making is after you're gone or after you're retired, you're 70, 80 years old, and guys start kicking around. They're like, oh, you know, I have this crazy old call. And uh, it's your legacy. It's your way to leave your legacy that people can get out there and hunt. And it's so important that I just love... I love the old calls and looking at the old calls and their craftsmanship and the way that they do it. Because you can go buy a polycarb or an acrylic call, you know, off a of Bass Pro Cabela shelf or whatever and, and kill a pile of birds with it. But that story is just not the same as when people are putting in these uh these handcrafted hours into these calls. Yep, I agree. So you started out in Michigan. What was what was the move to Michigan? Because you're from Indiana and you moved up there. What was the the reason for that? Um. Well, at that time, I was uh, in the golf business. I was a golf professional, 
like as in like a golf pro or are you working like selling gear or what was that um well golf a golf pro is the guy you see on saturday and sunday yeah right okay i was a pga professional in the fact that i was working at country clubs and golf courses and running events for for uh members and all that stuff i actually worked for a living i didn't play for a living <laughs> okay <laughs> so you really got coordinating like tournaments and stuff like that yes correct very cool man what are the I, this has nothing to do with call making what is the headache of that like oh 80 to 100 hours a week in the summertime and never getting to see your family or kids and and uh it, it it got to the point where it was awful. Dang, I'm I'm not in that golf, not in that business anymore. Dang, dude, did you grow up? I actually grew up one street over from our golf course, and uh, we kind of when we were kids, that's where we were having hide and go seek at night, capture the flag, taking our BB guns, our fishing poles out to the 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 golf course ponds, and sure. being crazy. You know? Is that what you grew yep. up doing? I grew up, um, yeah, if you couldn't find me on a lake fishing, you found me on the golf course playing golf when I was a kid. That's awesome. Yeah, it was uh, great. I had a great great childhood. I can't complain. (laughs) Well, that's like uh, Meredith. He works as, I don't know what he does for his golf course, but I know he does a lot on his golf course with grounds and stuff like that. And that dude is yeah. always playing golf. Well, when you, when you got the right people working underneath you, you could do that. <laughs> it's Dude, it's never-ending because those guys are always out there messing with something. And then you get kids like me out there screwing stuff up. They would always chase <laughs> us off, you know? Oh, yeah. I got kicked off of many golf courses when I was a kid. <laughs> like, why do you have a BB gun on the golf course? Like, well, I'm yeah. shooting stuff out here, man. <laughs> I, mean, I was at, I had my fishing pole in my hand. That this was, like, I'm not a big fisherman now. I don't have the patience for it, but that is where I grew up fishing, was on our golf course. We had, like, four or five big lakes on there. We'd always go out there and go fishing. It was just part of life, you know, how kids nowadays, my kids are always wanting to play Minecraft or some nonsense on the tablets. So I'm like, go outside and ride your bikes. <laughs> no joke. I get on my girls all the time. It's it's never ending, man, because it's almost like you tell them to get off the technology and go outside, and they're like, oh, man, I don't want to do this. And then four hours later, you're like, all right, it's time to come in and eat dinner and take showers. And they're like, I don't want to come inside. And I'm like, you didn't even want to go outside to begin with. <laughs> and that's so true. <laughs> so... You, you get into call making, you move back to Indiana getting out of the golf game. What, uh, I don't know, man. What, like, did you do any hunting up in, in Michigan? I would hope so. Oh, yeah. We would, uh, we would, uh, hunt Lake Michigan. We'd hunt lots of cornfields on that side of the state. And then my buddy Dave and I, we, we would run over to Saginaw Bay for a long weekend and hunt divers. Did you screw around with those layout boats and stuff like that? No, never did the layout boats. We just, I don't know if you know anything about Saginaw Bay. I do not. Okay, well, you can go out three, four miles and be in 
waist deep water. It's very, it's a big body of water that's very shallow. Second in, in, in fact, the first trip I went up there with him, I took my boat and he had his and I was following him out there and we're, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning and we're heading out into what looks like a black hole because there's absolutely no lights on. You can't even see across the bay. And we're riding for half hour or so, 45 minutes. And uh, he's got GPS on his boat. And, and he pulls off to the side. He says, okay, you're hunting here. He says, jump out. I said, screw you. We're <laughs> three mi- two miles offshore. I'm not jumping out of nothing. He said, dude, it's like two feet deep. Jump out. I said, no way. So I grab the oar in my boat, and I go to slam that thing in the in the ground like it like there's no bottom, and the thing goes down about two feet and just stops. And I look over at him, and he's laughing his butt off. So that's how I got christened on Saginaw Bay. But yeah, you just Saginaw Bay, you just throw out your decoys in a big old pod. And you literally set your boat in the middle of the water. No no cover around you, no nothing. Well, I don't blame you, man, because you know how dark? Like, people that are from the cities and stuff like that who have never been out on that big open water don't realize how dark it really gets out in the open. That was, like, one of my first vivid memories when I was in the Navy was getting out to the open air and open water the first time and being away from all land. And it was just insane how open yeah. and dark it gets and how many stars you can see out there. Oh, it's amazing. Um, I, always, I took my daughters on a, on a ferry ride last summer across Lake Michigan. And we did it during the day. We left in the morning and got over to the Wisconsin side about noon. But I would love to take that trip at night, just so you could see the how dark it is and all the sun, all the uh, stars and everything. That would be fun. It's one of my favorite things when I was in the Navy because when you would you'd be out there and there's always a guy on the back of the ship, and he's watching for people that fall over, and he's reporting boats and stuff like that on the horizon and other ships that he sees. And you you get up in the middle of the night and you'd go hang out with these guys in the back or if you were unlucky enough to draw that watch and you'd sit out there in just the complete blackness of the night. And they would have the, the motors, if, especially if we weren't going, we'd have the engines off or something like that or just going real slow, like five or six knots. And you just sit out there in this black abyss. And it was... I don't know. It is one of my favorite things just being out there on the big open water. And I imagine the Great Lakes have to be so similar because I've only been to Lake Michigan, you know, when I was uh, up north of Chicago and Great Lakes for training. But I never got that experience of going out on the big open water out there. So I can only imagine yeah. it's similar. It's, it's, it's got to be. But I would like to do it on the ocean too. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah it's cool unless... Uh, we, uh, we were out there one night, and we had really, really bad storms. And it got to the point where the guy that was standing on that aft lookout was tethered to the 
deck so that way if a wave came up and swept him overboard he wasn't dead so oh my god yeah yeah it it gets really sketchy out there on the ocean sometimes we were crossing we were coming around spain up in the north atlantic and we france or spain one of the two and we had a uh, a 22 or 23 foot wave come over the top and it actually broke off a mounted 50 cal and it came through and it hit our blast door and the door ripped off the hinges and hit a dude in the face that was inside the blast door and that is one of the most grotesque scenes i've ever seen but it's just like water did that it's unbelievable could you imagine being outside with it no 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 that would that would actually freak me out right there (laughs) it was it was very very weird and where i slept on the ship was below the water line and once you get to the point of being comfortable with it and forgetting about it, it's the best night of sleep you'll ever get. It rocks you to sleep like a baby. But when I first was on there, being from Missouri and a landlocked, <laughs> it was it was very interesting. It, there was always a little bit of level of like panic that you had, even if it was very little. I can only imagine because even the the movie. Uh titanic freaks me out when they get to that scene where they're or the uh boats going underwater that just i I have a really bad fear of drowning i guess (laughs) that's mine i'm not afraid of water at all and a lot of guys will give me a hard time about not wanting to get out on boats and stuff like that during waterfowl season i'm like i grew up on a boat i love hunt i love fishing i love swimming i love jet skiing i love wakeboarding all of that type yep. of stuff. I don't want to be out there where I know if I fall in the water and I happen to not drown and make it back to shore, I'm going to freeze to death. So it's like I get guys that give me a hard time about it. But when you're out there on that water, it's just always a heightened level of awareness of where the heck I was at, man. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I've uh, I've totally ADD'd and we've taken this thing into uh, – into open water adventures, but uh, <laughs> that's kind of the fun thing about the podcast and me having ADD. I just kind of go whatever hole we go down. I, I always tell everybody I'm easy, but I'm just not cheap. <laughs> so tell me about you in this last year at Easton. It was the first year at Easton where they did the, the waterfowl competition. You won duck call of the year in one of the categories, didn't you? Yeah, I won the open division, and then they put all three of those winners in the divisions, and uh, I came out winning the whole thing. Dude, that's so cool. I remember Michael was telling me about it on one of the podcasts, and he said he ran it and said it ran really good. Well, coming from him, that's a a big compliment. What was it like when uh, when you heard about that? Um, I couldn't believe it, really. Uh, Stump actually calls me, and uh, he uh, says, we just uh, announced the winners, because I was trying to listen um, on their live uh, feed to that, mm-hmm. and for some reason, it, it the, the mic must have cut out, or the, the audio wasn't very good, and it didn't hear it. And Stump calls me about 
I don't know, two minutes later. And he says, uh, did you hear? And I said, no, I, I, I must have missed it. And, uh, and so he says, well, you won the whole thing, bub. And I just kind of, uh, my jaw kind of opened to hit the, I kind of sat down. I was like, holy cow, I won it. There's no way. <laughs> Dude, that's so wild. That's, that's so freaking cool. It was, it was fun. That's for sure. And it's one of those things, man. It's just like you, you just go in and it's like, I think this thing rips. I think it's good to go. And you just, I don't know. I always feel I'm, I'm very much, I, I self deprecate myself a lot. I'm always like, ah, I'm an idiot. You know, what do I know? You know, I just turn these goofy duck calls in the garage for fun. And I know a lot of call makers are like that, kind of that aw shucks attitude. I think I, I jumped on Michael's case one time because he gives a very aw shucks attitude. And I'm like, no, dude. <laughs> like, you, you're good. Like, don't don't give me that nonsense. So I can only imagine what that feeling was of, you know, you always hope to win, but you never are going out there just like, oh, yeah, this one's mine. It's in the bag this year, baby. Oh, yeah. Well, especially with the call that I that I submitted, I only submitted one call, one duck call and one goose call. But the, when I cut the tone board on the jig, the teeth of the, the bandsaw went below the deck of the jig. So when I filed the, the, the uh, tone board down to the jig height, there was still teeth marks from the, from the, on the tone board from the saw. And I'm thinking, oh, no, this can't happen. And so I had to, you know, take layers off of that tone board down until I got rid of those saw marks. And I'm like, well, if this doesn't pan out, this call's not getting entered. And so I stuck a reed in it and corked it up and ran it. And I was like, this could be gravy here. <laughs> Actually, this and, sounds pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, um, my buddy Rob Miles doesn't live too far from here. And so I call Rob up. I says, when's the next time you can get down here? He says, I can come down this weekend. Why? So I got something I need, for, I need you to try. And so he comes down and he runs the call and he runs a, about a minute routine on it and he kind of takes it away from his lips. He gives me, looks at me at the corner of his eye and he goes, I like that. I like it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> did, and, uh, uh, did Seth do that one on video? No, he didn't. I asked him and he, he said uh, he, he ran out of battery by the time he got to the open division. Dang, man, that's crazy. Yeah, I really would have wished he would have... Uh, had a video of that with him that would have been cool yeah that's something that I talked to Teddy Hoover about the guy who uh, he kind of runs Easton and helps you know try to facilitate that whole thing was he was asking me about what I thought could help the contest and what I might want to see and I said you know my favorite thing in that whole thing was seeing Seth do his own little live stream and giving that live feedback 
because you know if you get a note from a call and it's like oh it runs a little tight on the bottom end or it's a little bit tight on the top end or i wish it had more this more that you're like okay i can read the note and try to interpret interpret what he's talking about but seeing that live stream of him hit that specific section of the call that he was talking about like i've said it a few times i think that it was so valuable and I think Teddy's looking at maybe implementing something like that for the next one. Oh, that would be awesome. I Did you think it was helpful? Absolutely. I loved listening to, to um, Seth break down each call. I thought that was very entertaining, one. And then, two, if I was the call maker that made that call and you got Seth critiquing... Um, your call and telling you where you need to improve that just makes all of us better as call makers yeah that value in what he's doing with that like that's the equivalent i don't know it's it's just you would have to pay money for that in a lot of other avenues like if you're trying to learn to be a welder and somebody who's one of the best you know pipe fitters or whatever is giving you advice on how to fix your stuff it's like you'd have to pay money to go to school and learn that type of stuff so having that feedback i told him i was like dude that is so valuable and as a fan that's very entertaining yes absolutely it was you just hope that he doesn't grab your call and it runs like hammered dog crap (laughs) you're like oh god please just let me get my last place ribbon and get out of here (laughs) no yeah no, I, I think that was uh, – if, if they decide to implement something like that, I think that could that could bring everybody's level of game up. I think with this corona has brought everybody's freaking game level up, man. No, that's true too. Well, for the guys that – I never got a break during all this corona stuff. I've been deemed essential, and so I've been traveling all over the country. Me too, man. That's what uh, I was telling buddies, you know, on, earlier in this this whole thing. I was like, man, I wish I was deemed essential sometimes because I've turned a heck of a lot less calls with this corona thing going on. But uh, I can tell you the man who's uh, really had the best business of this whole thing has to be Brian Byers with that check- checkering cradle. Oh, he is crazy good at that. Well, He's been and all doing the guys it forever, are, too. All the guys that have bought one of those things... Everybody is picking up checkering. Yeah. Guys that have time to do it. Right. And steady hands. I I just don't Uh, know, man. I jump all over the place. You know, I can... Yeah, I don't know that I got the patience for that. I'll, I'll, you know, do inlays and and stippling. But when it comes to the the, uh, really decorative stuff like your panels and... The checkering and the, uh, or what do they call that? Ink. Um, Scrimshaw? Scrimshaw. Oh my God. Yeah, no way. Yeah, I was talking with Waylon about that and uh, how he's putting it in those fishing nets and his own calls and stuff like that. And he's like, oh yeah, I used to draw all the time, so it's not a big deal. And I was like, well, more more hats off to you, guy, because somebody has to be out there carrying on that tradition. I don't know it's going to be me. Yeah, amen, it's not me. <laughs> so, no. 
Dealing with Easton, I know that you're a you're an NWTF guy. I feel like I've seen some of your calls at NWTF and stuff like that. Like not a comparison, but what's your favorite show that you enter, go to, etc.? I entered NWTF once. Was it um, like 2014, something like that? Oh, I think it was even earlier than that. It might have been. Trying to think, it, it might have been maybe like 12 or 14. I can't remember, but it was a while ago, and I placed third in my division that I entered. So I got a good representation there, but. Things have gotten since then. My work's gotten so much better, as I, like everybody else can say. When you go from year to year to year, either your sound and or both, or your look and hit and finish and all that stuff, it's got to get better the more you do it. So, I agree, man. What What's the reason for entering it one year, not entering it the next year? Um. Honestly, I got a little perturbed when I entered it that year, and I placed third as my first year. But um, and I was the a little upset that I didn't get rookie of the year. I guess I don't know. Maybe I had higher expectations than what was really available with my call. I guess I don't know, but I guess that's kind of it. Because I, I was the highest. I placed highest as a rookie in any division and didn't get rookie of the year. It just kind of didn't make sense to me. Yeah, I can understand that, man. I, the only reason I ask is not to have you name anything or anything like that. Teddy asked me the other day, he goes, if you're not going to enter competition, why don't you? And I was like, oh, man, that is such a tough question. <laughs> and I is. told him, I was like, man, I think it's because, like, I still – I've been doing it for five, five and a half years. And I still don't even have a jig because I am so, I guess, every call that I make, I'm always looking for a way to do it a little bit better. So I'm like, I just, I can't bring myself to make the investment because I just, if I sell a call, I don't care. It's more of, I just want to keep buying material so I can make another one whenever I get the time for it. And right. I, the $400 or whatever to make a jig, I'm like, I just can't justify it when I always think that I can do it a little bit better. And that's just the natural progression, I think. And I was like, so I think that's why I haven't entered any competitions is because I want to put my best foot forward. And I feel like every call that I make, you know, is getting a little bit better. But he just asked me, he's like, why, why wouldn't you enter? And uh, so that was kind of why I followed up with, you know, you entered, you did really good, and then it took you a while to enter another one. Yeah. Well, and really the only reason why I entered um, Easton last year was because Stump gave me a a rash of shit that I didn't enter the first year. And so he, he calls me up a few months before Easton this last year, and he goes, you're entering calls, right? And uh, so I busted out two calls for him. (laughs) (laughs) That is one guy that I said it before. I want to get him on the podcast because he is such a piece of the culture of custom call making. A guy who's, 
His calls are at the top of the game in the calling competition side of things, and he also makes a freaking world-class level custom call for a call maker competition side of things, but you don't see him on Facebook. You never hear the guy talk. Most people don't even know his name. And, you know, that's, so I was always like, I don't know that he would ever do it, but that is one guy that I think a lot of people would want to hear from, and I would sit there and want to pick his brain. Oh, he is, when when I get stumped on stuff, no no pun intended, <laughs> um, but when I have trouble with some things, I'll call stump, and I say, here's what I got, here's what I got going on, here's what I've tried, point me in the right direction. And, you know, we I've heard you had this conversation with a couple of the other guys. Nobody's going to come out and tell you exactly how to do it. And that's why I like working with, with Stump. He'll tell you flat out, straight up, if it's good, bad, ugly, and different. He still gives me crap about my bands being on Upside Down. <laughs> but... But um, but he'll tell you straight up what you, what what's wrong and and why it's happening. So he'll point you in the direction. Say, try this if you haven't done that already. And he actually was a big influence on me because we both started making duck calls about the same time. And. Uh, he helped me actually develop my first tone board. So I leaned up. I must have shipped him inserts six, eight times after I've messed with him and say, okay, how's this? He goes, it's better. It still sucks, but it's, it's better. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that feedback that I think that's one of the things that is really cool about call making is guys Egos are in check a lot of times. You have some guys, of course, there's always a squabble here and there. When you get, you know, a thousand people together that are doing the same thing, there's going to be squabbles. But callmakers' egos, it seems, are, at least on the surface, are way more in check than a lot of other avenues in life where, you know, do you remember when Shanahan was on Call Nuts? Mm-hmm. And he got booted because he was giving advice I don't know exactly why, but the from the way that I took it is because he was being far too blunt with his advice. Yes. And I was always like, dude, that's what I want. I want somebody Absolutely. to tell me when it's going to suck and how to fix it. And Trevor was going out there and doing that for guys all the time. And yep. I think that helps. You know, you have to refine and how you talk to different people and do different things but i think that type of advice is so valuable i'd rather get my nuts kicked in and have somebody give me honest advice rather than people say oh yeah i love this and never give you any actual feedback yes of how to get yep. better yep i agree i like you said you get your nuts kicked in or your or you know your your ego stomped on and that's i think you know, in this day and age, people are a little too sensitive. Uh, yeah, that's that's putting it very lightly. <laughs> yes. You, you just have to, man. If you want to get to that championship level, to the, get to that great level, you have to have humility. And you have to constantly want to keep refining and rehoning your craft 
because once you know it's that age-old thing of if you're doing if you're staying the same you're falling behind especially right, right now dude yep Everybody's that is for sure. so there's so many guys that have been doing it two or three years that are just killers i mean when will shelley freaking first came on the scene heck even meredith those guys went to the top very very quick in the game because there's so much information out there right now and so many guys to bounce ideas off of and if you're willing to put in the work and listen and learn and listen twice as much as you speak like you can get good quick yes but like you said god gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason listen as twice as much as you speak that's one of the things that I love about doing this podcast is just picking different guys' brains and how they and how they think. And I think it's so cool for the young call makers that listen to guys like yourself and other guys that are that are placing, you know, really well and doing making great quality calls. And it's like all those guys went through the same exact struggle as somebody who's making calls for two months. And yeah. like, man, I don't even know if I should keep doing this anymore. I suck. I'm just making a bunch of firewood. Good. Good, that's yes, part of the process, you man. You bet. If you're making firewood a year into this thing, then you're right on pace. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, know, you were talking with somebody else in the last, or about a while ago, like in the April of last, this year, of like how little information there was out there for when, like, when I started, when Stump started. You know, the only thing we had was THO. Yeah, right now we're living in the golden age of call making. It's not the the classic seventies and fifties and thirties and stuff that you're going to see in the Memphis the Memphis uh, Hall of Fame going on right now. But you know, give it another fifty years, we are living in the golden age of call making. There's never been a time that there's been more information and more guys connected to the best yes. guys in the world. If you want to pick up and learn how to carve, you can freaking message Brad Samples, and he's going to message you back. Yep. And he's not going to hide information. Like, he might not give you away everything he's ever learned, but he's going to point you on the path to do how he learned it. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's the best time. I agree. It's it's very wild, brother, and I'm uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. This, this COVID thing has kicked everybody. Like, if you're making a hunting call nowadays and you don't have some kind of embellishments on it, whether it be tips or inlays or checkering or – Scrimshaw, you're you're behind on the game right now because people are making insane stuff. Yes, they are. I I I don't get to keep up with it as much as I would like to, but what I do see is there are some beautiful looking calls. And I'd have no idea if if the sound is accompanying with the beauty, but Heck, I'd like to have half of those calls just to put on my shelf. Well, exactly. I was talking to John Taylor, and you know his goose calls are world champion level. Obviously, he's a champion caller, and he's got a yep. bunch of guys in the freaking champ with world championships. And you know he's making a championship level call, and he's like, "Dude, you guys have inspired me. I'm breaking out the lathe again, and I'm starting to do some custom work, you know, for fun." And I'm like, "Oh God, if you have guys that..." Or out there on a world championship level in the calling scene of things, making you know, start making some of these decorative embellishments on their calls. Like, it's 
it's crazy, man. It's fun to watch. Yeah, that is neat. Mr. Taylor is a class act gentleman. Dude, we talked, we did an hour and 25 minutes, and I don't think he talked about call making once. We got so, or competition calling from his aspect once. And that's the, it's so funny. I try to come up with a little bit of a game plan to talk to different guys about just to kind of, you know, set up my conversation to kind of at least some points that I want to hit, but not make it staged or anything like that. And like, I think even when I talked to Ernie Ross, I don't know if you listened to that episode, we didn't talk about him making calls one time in an hour and a half. Yeah. And it's Ernie freaking Ross on there, you know? He's a good dude too. Oh, he's so funny to listen to. And he just has so much knowledge and information on everything. And for me, is just a guy who just turns once or twice a week in my garage. I take it as a true honor that I get to talk to you guys and pick your brains and listen to stories and share all this type of stuff. That's fun. I, I haven't listened to all your episodes yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, brother. And uh, like I said, I've said it on a few different podcasts. I enjoy this almost as much as making calls. It's It's pretty close, enough that I give up call making time to do it. Because I really enjoy it, and I love sharing it, and having guys, uh, I'll put out an episode, and I'll get four or five other different call makers, competition callers, message me, they're like, hey man, when can I come on? I'm like, you know, hold on, let me get you on the schedule, brother, I'd love to have you on. You bet. It's uh, yep. it's fun, it's bringing all the, the world of competition calling, call makers, waterfowl hunters together, and just sharing yeah. their stories, man. Yep. You know, another avenue I just thought about that you might entertain is putting into your uh, repertoire is uh, decoy carvers. I know. That's definitely on my list because those guys are insane. I just got a decoy from Thomas Canelli out in Maryland. This thing looks like it could spit feathers. And how those guys, like, my brain just, that was the one of the hardest things with trying to tinker around with carving on calls, is my brain gets how to draw something, but removing material to make it that shape. Those guys are phenomenal, man. Yeah, I agree. I might have to message you after this thing is over and get a contact with him, just to uh, pick his brain and get him on the, one of these podcasts. Yeah, sure, I bet he'd love it. Absolutely, brother. And, uh... I don't know. I really want to appreciate you, man, for coming on here and giving me some of your time this afternoon. I know you're out in the shop working on some calls, and uh, I'm about to send the the kiddos over to Grandma's for the evening because they're dying to go, and I'm dying for some peace and quiet after the zoo today. (laughs) I can only imagine. It's fun. Even when they're getting along and nobody's, you know, squaring up with each other, it's still just nonstop noise. (laughs) Dad, 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 you know about this? Uh, How how old are your kids again? They're seven, six, and six. Okay. Yeah, I got a uh, soon-to-be 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. You're about to enter that really, really fun age. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Attitude age. Yes. You have girls, too, don't you? I do. I have two girls and a boy, (laughs) and it's God help you. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes i'm i'm blessed and i'm cursed all in the same sentence you know i went in the first time and the doctor was like what do you want 
And I was like, either a boy or a disappointment. And you would have thought that I had punched the lady in the face. And I was like, I'm kidding. Obviously, I'm just kidding. And then 10 months later, I went back again and again. They're like, well, what do you want this time? And I was like, honestly, just give me somebody else that I can pee standing up with. And they're like, nope, it's another girl. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh... I, I didn't know how I would react about having daughters, um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. There's just something special about a daddy-daughter relationship that it's just awesome. Oh, yeah. They, they play that card. Nope, you can't go do this. Dad, and come up five minutes later. I'm like, oh, yeah, that looks that looks great, baby. And, you know, the girlfriend, mom, hey, I just told you not to do that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yes. crap, my bad. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, my. Well, I appreciate it, brother, and I'll let you get back to work. And, uh, yeah, man, it's been really fun. It's been cool listening and picking your brain and, you know, just getting to know guys. You know, getting yes. to, to hear stories because I see all the pictures on Facebook, on Call Nuts and stuff like that, and, I'll shoot comments back and forth with guys, but actually having these sit-down conversations, it just it just takes it to another level. That's a lot of fun, man. It does. You get to know somebody on a personal note. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I I appreciate it, my man. I'll let you get back to work. Well, I, I enjoyed it, and it was an honor to be on your uh, podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, man. Yep, let's keep in touch. Absolutely, buddy, and I would love to have you on again once we get closer to hunting season. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> All right, bud. Okay. Take care. Take care. All right, guys, Randy Sesco. I think I pronounced it incorrectly the first time. I think I said Cisco, but it's Randy Sesco. That's my bad. Uh, Thank you guys for tuning in. Make sure that you share, like, review, do all that stuff that I ask you to do. Get in there and get yourself a free duck call. All you have to do is follow the rules that are on the BTBN page. It's easy. Right now, um, I don't even know what our entries are like, but uh, you got pretty good odds. Pretty good odds of walking away with one. I had uh, the last one that I gave away. The guy did all 28 things. And that's not 28 different things. I had him share every episode and comment. And that was it. He put his name in 28 times. He won the sucker. When other guys only shared like one episode and they put their name in the hat once. So the more that you do, follow the rules, tag the guys, put the odds in your favor, win yourself a duck call. Um, I got a bunch more this weekend that people are hitting me up. So next week should look good. I hope you guys enjoy it. Stay safe from this dust storm. I say that with uh, quotations around it because it's not going to be anything. But uh, I hope you guys have a great one. Take care.